Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are a God of more. There is always more in you. And Lord, we are so thankful for all that we've seen, for all that you have done in our midst, in our lives personally. But Lord, I, I, I just pray that there would be a, a new holy hunger, a new desire to step past what we've seen and what is comfortable, that we would see the fullness of your kingdom established. Lord, as you taught us to pray, we continue to ask, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You yourself declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we pray that this would be a time and a season where we see that manifested in power in our midst for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. Fill us afresh with boldness. Stretch forth your hand to perform mighty signs and wonders that we might go forth and proclaim the excellencies of your name, the power of the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we just acknowledge that we need more than what I can give, certainly. We need the touch of your Holy Spirit. We need what only you can do. It's only your power that changes hearts and lives. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, move amongst us today. Speak to our hearts. Transform us. Enable us to see you afresh in all the beauty and the wonder and the majesty that is you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. I began last week, just a couple of messages. We've got a space for a few messages before the, uh, all the wonderful activities that we have between now and the year begin to kick off. And I had on my heart just to do a very basic, simple, fo- have a basic, simple focus, a, a simple series. I think so often there's a tendency in all areas of life, as, you know, as, as Adam was just prophesying in the midst of worship, we don't wait very well. And, and we don't just rest in the simple. We're always looking for the latest and the greatest. And the moment you get it, it's already outdated anyway. And there's something new and there's something greater and there's something bigger and there's something better. And we have these times in our life, I think, where we try and, and make the gospel the latest gospel 2.0. We dress it up. We have these fancy sermon series that have wonderful titles. And there's nothing wrong with fancy sermon series and wonderful titles. But at times we miss the heart, we miss the message. We've got to strip back through all that modern facade just to glimpse again the glory of the gospel, the wonder of who Jesus is. And we could gather for many reasons as we come this morning. And many churches do. They, they gather to be um, inspired with a good self-help sermon, with a, you know, encouraging sermon illustrations and funny stories and all of that in and of the, themselves is not bad. But we don't want to gather for any other purpose centrally than to see Jesus, to encounter him, to behold the beauty of who he is and allow that radical reality to transform us. Because you cannot behold him and not become like him. You cannot behold him and, and stay the same. I was reading this week of Isaiah, is it chapter 7, 6, 7, where he has the vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord 
seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I said, Behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and everybody else is just as bad as me. We're a bunch of sinners, sinful people in the presence of a holy God. To behold him. And really, that's what Paul's heart is as he writes the letter to the Ephesians. We talked last week about verse 16 and 17, this prayer in chapter 1, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. A word which literally means to be completely illuminated, crystal clear, to see something in all its brilliance. Your eyes enlightened to the hope to which he's called you, the inheritance of the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And it's hard to stop anywhere because it's so good. It's just Paul with a big morning coffee getting very excited about who Jesus is. And so we, we are looking this week. Last week we, we really... Uh, took verse 3 and 4 as the focus. And in him, Paul says, we have meaning. Before the foundation of the world, he's chosen us, he's called us, he's predestined us in love. This wonderful picture of the gospel bringing meaning to our lives, a meaning that's absolute, it's certain and complete, rather than any other meaning which at best would be relative, temporary and limited. It's this snapshot of the power of the gospel to bring meaning to the human heart. For believers, we bask in its glory, and for others, we invite them in to ponder the majesty of what the cross truly means, what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ means for us. So this morning, I want us to continue on from verse 7. The second, in him. And Paul writes this, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will so we've been freed from our sins but we've been freed for a purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is the essence of what Paul is saying to the Ephesians? And probably, to be perfectly honest, you could think of half a dozen things at least. And as I mentioned, we're not trying to comprehensively cover the majesty and wonder of the gospel. We're trying to present snapshots, just snapshot glimpses of the glory of the gospel. And so here is the glimpse or the snapshot for this morning. In him, there is true freedom. In him, there is true freedom. So last week we talked about this reality that all human hearts long for meaning. From certain particular worldviews, they might argue that we can survive perfectly fine without having any purpose to our lives. Well, that might be okay for some, but for most of us, it is a reality that the human heart needs meaning. We need a purpose. We need a reason for being. We need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And I would suggest that along with this in, in, inherent need for meaning, we have this inerrant desire 
for freedom. Now, I did toy with the idea of bringing along a kilt. I do have a little bit of Scottish blood going back from my father's line in particular. Because it's very hard to talk about freedom without mentioning Braveheart, isn't it? <laughs> the old classic. And of course, there's that wonderful scene as the, the Scottish army and the, the, the Scottish. That was my bad Scottish accent. Let's move on. They gathered there against a far greater English army and they're terrified and they're afraid. And of course, William Wallace, he gathers them, he musters the troops and he gives them this speech. He says, they could take our lives, but they cannot take our... That was, that was, that was all right. We should get Martin up there to give it a, a good Scottish yell. They can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. And there's this reality to freedom in, in every aspect of the word. Freedom is this thing that ignites our souls with passion. It's worth fighting for, it's worth dying for, and it's one goal that regardless of worldviews and perspectives seems to resonate in the human heart, this cry for freedom. We need to be free. I mean, the problem is sometimes, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is we don't really know how to define what freedom is what freedom actually looks like. So we're searching for freedom, socially, morally, politically, nationally, and each of these different aspects of freedom would be worth considering. But really, I want to focus on just one tenant of freedom because we're trying to make this not a 100-part sermon series. I want to talk about this notion of personal freedom. What is freedom? And how does that compare? We've just read Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He says, in him, we've been set free. We've been forgiven and we've been forgiven for a purpose. So what is that picture of personal human freedom? And contrast that to other pictures of how we would define freedom. So first of all, if we just search for a definition, I, I would say that most of our our common societal worldview would define freedom. And this is the cry that we hear time and time again. Freedom is the right to do whatever I want. Whatever I choose to do, I can do whatever I want. And then sometimes there's a little disclaimer thrown in the end there, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. That's, that's truly what it means to be free. I will be free if I can just determine what is right and wrong. I can do whatever I want. And with a little disclaimer, you know, if that's, that's hurting you, then, well, you know, I can adjust my freedom accordingly. I read a particular article this week, and I'm sure you've seen a number. This was just in the Canberra Times, one particular lady talking about a modern, inclusive society that is tolerant should have at its essence this capacity for people to determine their own personal freedom. I should be able to. I should be able to determine. I should be able to do whatever I want. People say, I can't do it. I should be able to do that. As long as it's not hurting anyone else. As, as long as no one else is offended, which everybody is anyway, so that shoots itself in the foot. Why shouldn't I? Why should I not be able to determine everything that I desire to do? Isn't that really a picture of freedom? Now, for that particular view, the enemy of freedom then is presented as any sort of absolute morals. Christianity in particular, because we live in a, uh, a society that's based upon Christian principles. 
But certainly any kind of religion, therefore, is presented as the greatest enemy of freedom. Religion or Christianity and freedom are not two words that are used together particularly often. How many of us in conversations would hear, oh, well, Christianity is all about freedom. And yet, Jesus himself, John 8.32, he said this, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. So Christianity, at its core, has this reality or this notion of freedom. Christianity is all about freedom. In fact, Jesus said, I've come to set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So will the real freedom please stand up? What does freedom look like? How do we compare these two differing perspectives of freedom? Is Christianity the enemy of freedom? Or is Christianity, in fact, as Jesus himself proclaimed, the enabler of freedom. What is freedom and where does freedom come from? Now, can I say from the outset, this is a very broad topic and I'm trying to make this somewhat practical and hoping that at least a lot of you manage to stay awake through it and not trying to comprehensively cover this topic. But it's an important topic. So if I can just have that disclaimer and we'll jump right in and hopefully something in there encourages our heart. Give me a bit of grace. Is that okay? Sometimes it's like this you know, massive picture that you're, you're trying to cover in a short period of time and just hoping that you do more good than damage by the time you get to the end. So here's just four different aspects about the nature of freedom, whatever your definition of freedom would be, and I want to just present a case which I believe with all my heart that Christianity and the message of Christ is in fact the only means to a true and real freedom. So number one is true freedom by nature requires truth. You see, we want in that first picture of freedom that I painted, we want this freedom that is free of any sort of notion of truth. A freedom that doesn't have ju judgments. doesn't make judgments. There's no absolutes. The problem is, as I'll hopefully show you in a moment, a freedom without truth and without judgments is not freedom at all. It doesn't exist. And in fact, we see this all the time. A very practical example is we have a society that says, we want to be free. We want to be inclusive. We want to be tolerant. We, we want to encourage everybody to believe whatever they want to believe. And then what happens in the next breath? Oh, but you can't believe that. Believe everything you want. Oh, but not that. No, no, there's a line here. You're free for... Uh, you, you think, well, hang on a sec. That's, that doesn't make sense. How can we be free and still drawing a line to say, well, that's, that's, this is free and that's not free? And, and that's because freedom doesn't exist without some sort of notion of, of truth. And so often we're held up... It's held up as a belief, as a statement, that this particular view is free and Christianity is not free because it has truth at its core. So I want to quickly visit a conversation that I've mentioned before and I know we spent a lot of this year actually talking about truth and the importance for truth and the battle of truth but th just one story to highlight this which I think is worth revisiting again. It's a conversation I had with 
a couple that I know very well, good friends of ours, and we were sitting around the dinner table earlier this year having a conversation about different things and we're talking about marriage in particular. And I just said, hopefully it was from the Lord, in the midst of that conversation, I just had this question and I said to them, what is it, and we're talking about different worldviews, they're not Christians, what is it that is your greatest hindrance to receiving the Christian message? I thought it would be interesting to hear what they said on that topic. And they said straight away, it is intolerance. It's this absolute truth that one group is right and one group is wrong. And so because we'd been talking about marriage, I said, well, let's, let's think that through a little bit because you're claiming that your particular view is completely tolerant and completely free and that my view is completely intolerant and unfree, if that was a word. Like freedom. So I said, well... Say that we want to then open the floodgates and say, well, there are no absolutes in terms of marriage. People should marry whoever they want. You know, they can marry as they have in some countries, multiple people. They could marry their pets. They can marry their pillows, which did actually happen in one particular example. You know, is, is that what you're saying? Oh, well, no, that's ridiculous. I said, well, well, where's the line? And for them, as we worked through it, they said, well, no, marriage should be just two people. That's the particular line. And I said, all right, and as we, as we developed the conversation, what became very clear is to them, there was a very clear line of truth. There was a very clear belief. There was a very clear definition, even though they claimed that their view was completely tolerant and free. And this is where it landed. I said, so here is what we need to realize, is that if there is truth, if there's a line, truth by definition is exclusive and intolerant. It has to be. If it's not intolerant and exclusive, then there is no truth. And that's a whole other philosophical argument that we don't have time for today. So if there is a belief, if there is a line, if there is truth, then it is by nature intolerant. So the only difference between my view and yours is that we have different definitions of what is intolerant and tolerant. Both of our views by nature, because we hold on to truth, have at their very core concept of intolerance and exclusivity and so all that we've done and, and and this is what i tried to present to them and this is what we see in society all that we've done is we've actually narrowed the definition of truth because we've said this particular worldview so we see all the time in society this particular worldview is correct all those old views are not correct all these views are incorrect so we've actually taken one very narrow definition of truth and held that up as an absolute and enforce that upon people. The result is a society that we live in that has cried out for freedom. We want freedom, but what's happened? We've all but shut down free speech. We want freedom, but you can't be free to speak about anything. We've cried out as a society, we want tolerance. We want inclusivity, and yet we've championed intolerance. We will not have a bar of that. We are drawing this line, and it is as solid a line as you will ever find. And so this modern battle for truth and, and for freedom comes down to a foundation of truth. It's not that one view exists without truth and without barriers, and this view exists with truth and with barriers. It is a battle of what is the correct truth. Which, in fact, is exactly what Jesus says in John 8.32. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Truth is not the hindrance to freedom. Truth is the means for us to find freedom. And it's from a Christian point of view, that's why Jesus came. He said, I am truth. I've not come to leave you wandering around in darkness, wandering with a variety of different paths and myths that you could take. I've come to make it crystal clear. I've come to illuminate the reality of truth to your hearts. I am truth. There is truth. And if you abide in my truth, then truth will set you free. Let's move on. The second point. So that's freedom doesn't exist without truth. Here's the other problem with this picture of freedom that is relative. Is that freedom needs more than me. And here again is what I would say is the philosophical issue with this concept of a relative freedom or a personally determined freedom. Without any external absolute, effectively what we've done is held up the individual's right as arbitrator and judge to determine truth. So there's a push for human autonomy and as we've pushed, we've narrowed the concept of freedom to something within us which then enslaves us to ourselves. This is something we've seen from the beginning. This is fascinating to me that right from the very beginning we had Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan comes to tempt them. And yes, he tempted them with fruit and all that. But what was the lie that he planted? If you eat from this fruit, you will have the ability to know or to discern what is right and wrong. That was the lie ultimately that Eve fell for. And that is the lie that we are buying into that somehow if we make ourselves, if we can ascend to be in the place of God, if we can determine for, our, for ourselves, each individual, what is right and wrong, then we will truly be free. But I want to tell you this, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's Satan's oldest strategy and all it ever does is leads us down a path of bondage. It doesn't work on any level. Just think about a society, which we're rapidly heading towards being, but a society that removed any sort of absolute principles in any area of life. Just say the road rules, for example. We decide as a nation, you know what? We have these nice roads, but we've decided there's relative freedom. You can decide how you want to drive. You can decide how fast you want to go. We can decide if you want to drive forwards or backwards around the corner you can drive with your feet out your window as i see people doing you can go around the roundabouts the wrong way is that a picture of freedom it's a picture of chaos and confusion let's take this down to a personal level i love this quote and i know i've referred to this book saving truth by abdu murray before but i just want to read you something he says in terms of this desire that we have to find within us everything we want to look inside for our meaning, inside for our purpose, inside for our freedom. We want to make freedom ourselves the means and the ends of our personal freedom. And here is the issue. He quotes from David Foster Wallace, an American writer, who, and this is a quote from him. He points this out. There's actually, and bear in mind, this guy is actually not a Christian man. So he's actually coming from a worldly point of view. But he says this, there is no such thing as atheism. All of us, regardless of our religious or non-religious bents, worship something. 
And if what we worship isn't transcendent, or effectively, if what we worship isn't beyond us, if the end of our freedom and our worship and our purpose and our meaning is simply here, which is what a relative freedom effectively is, this is the, this is the result. If it isn't transcendent, but it's only based on personal preference, our idol will eventually consume us. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid or fraud and always on the verge of being found out and so on. Interesting perspective, isn't it? From someone who doesn't subscribe to a Christian point of view. But he, note, he noted the futility of trying to find freedom being the source and fulfillment and maintenance of our own freedom that purely comes from something that we personally determine. You see, this is where the message of the gospel comes in and stands so radically powerfully. The message of the gospel was never just to give us freedom from some external reality. The message of the gospel is that Christ came to save us from ourselves. He came to do what we could never do ourselves. He came to pay the price and he gave up everything so that we might know freedom. Because the true issues of bondage, the true issues of captivity, are not what we see in the world alone. They're just manifestations of the real issues that Christ came for and it's the bondage and it's the sin that is within our own hearts we could develop that more but let me leave that one there so number three the second one again was true freedom it needs more than us an inward search for freedom is a fruitless search that will eventually enslave us to ourselves cause us to become addicted unhappy and dissatisfied number three True freedom requires constraints and requires sacrifice. You see, we want, again, over in this picture of freedom, to define freedom as something that's free of limitations. I am free to do whatever I want, anything I please. But the reality is that freedom always comes at a cost. There's a great plaque. It hangs in the Korean War Memorial, uh, Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. I've seen it myself. And it's inscribed on the wall. It says, freedom is not free. Someone always pays a price for freedom. You see, freedom by nature requires restrictions and limitations. And eventually, freedoms clash. For example, let's just look at this on a personal level. If my greatest freedom is to have money to spend on things for myself, if that's my source of freedom, to be financially free, there's always going to be a tension between how much I spend and how much I save. What's the greater freedom? To spend the money because I want stuff or to save so I can buy stuff later? There's, there's a, a crossing over. There's a clash of freedoms. Same thing with time. What is it that I want to be free to spend my time on? Doing things, work, leisure, 
Eventually, something will have to be sacrificed in the name of freedom. So freedoms have a need to be exercised within constraints and within sacrifice. And we see no better picture of this than of the God of the heaven and earth who gave up his freedom, who restricted himself to offer us the ultimate freedom from evil and from death itself. And that leads me on very quickly to the final point. True freedom, finally, it needs purpose. We saw that so clearly in Ephesians. It's not just a freedom from sin. It's a freedom for a purpose. This view that says freedom is just determined by me is a very one-sided picture of freedom because it makes freedom the end in itself. Whereas freedom should only ever be a means. Let's go back to Braveheart. I know I'm not wearing my kilt. I apologize. But you imagine the battle lines form there. The, it's fine. Thank you. There's the front, front row. We did not need to see that. Get that picture out of your mind. Move on. So there, there's the Scottish army fighting the English. Now, if it was just about a battle, what a waste of lives that would have been. But the battle in itself, the fight for freedom, wasn't the end. That was just the means to the end. The end was that they would become an independent nation, that they'd have the authority to decide, etc., etc. There's an end game beyond this desire for freedom in and of itself. Freedom has to lead us something, somewhere. Where should freedom lead us to? We'd have to all agree, at least theoretically, that ultimate freedom would come from using something, anything, or living our lives in accordance with the purpose that we had been created for. For example, I have a car. My car takes petrol. Now, I could say, I, I'm going to be particularly free. I'm going to exercise my freedom, which I can, and I'm not going to put petrol in the car anymore. I, I, I'm free to exercise restraint. Would I be using the car for which the purpose it was intended for? It would be a lovely decoration in my driveway, wouldn't it? But I'd never be there on the highway with my feet out the window, enjoying the <laughs> stereo. I, I would never be using the car for its true purpose. Let's, let's think about a personal level. I've used this example before, but you know, this picture of freedom, I can determine anything I want to be. Well, you know, I could determine which I never would, just in case you're wondering, that the desire of my life would be to be a ballet dancer. And I have a girl, one, my eldest daughter, who loves ballet. She's into it. She loves it all. We've got the interview concert coming up. It's bigger than Ben-Hur. She's doing all these dances, practicing the steps. And she's tried at times to teach me a few moves. And it's a complete disaster. She'll look at me afterwards and she'll say, Dad, you are really bad. You just And it's true. It's a statement of truth. Now, I could exercise my freedom and say, well, I, I, you know, I want to be a ballet dancer. I'm going to take lessons. I'm going to try and do as much as I can to head in that direction, buy a very pretty pink tutu. That's a bad picture too. <laughs> a few of those. Thank you. Thank you. But I can assure you that the Lord has not put me on this planet to be a ballet dancer. He just hasn't. Praise the Lord, says everybody. 
We don't need a preacher ballet dancer and a tutu. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. So I find my ultimate freedom in living for what I was made to do. Not just exercising freedom for the sake of trying to do that which I wasn't actually created to do. That's the ultimate expression of freedom. What is it that we were made for? We've already, we've already seen it twice in this one passage. Let's read it together. Already in verse 5 it says, We're predestined for adoption as sons. And then verse 9, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to purpose which he set forth in Christ, a plan to unite all things in him. We are created for love. We're created to love and to be loved. You see, freedom ultimately has to. It has to lead us somewhere. And there's no greater, more radical, more fulfilling, more purpose-filled expression of freedom than it leading us to the person of Jesus Christ and the relationship he offers. This is the picture of true freedom. So I want us to pray. Close your Bibles. I know we've covered some territory, hopefully not opened too many more cans than we've actually managed to close. But I want to pray for us and I want to give us an opportunity. For those of us who are believers, as I said, these few weeks are a moment for us just to gaze upon the majesty of the gospel. Last week, to just reflect what it means to live a life where every breath has meaning. From before the foundation of the world, you were purposed in your Father's heart. Every breath, every moment... So we sung this morning, it's just an opportunity to praise Him, to honor Him. Your life is rich with meaning. And then this morning, looking at this notion of what it means to be free, there is a longing. I believe there's a longing in every heart, actually, because it says in the book of Romans that, that all creation was subject to futility, was, was placed under the curse of sin. There is this recognition that we're not truly free. And then as, as, as we've explored, all other claims of freedom are ultimately futile. And yet there is true freedom, as Jesus proclaimed. If you abide in my words, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. There is freedom on offer. For those of us who already believe, it's a moment to, to rejoice in that, to receive that afresh, to live in wonder at the freedom that we're given. Freedom to live for Christ. The joy it, it is to lay down our lives for the one who laid down his life for us, to truly set us free. For those who perhaps are outside that reality of freedom, then this morning could be the moment that he draws your heart to him. And it would be my privilege to introduce you to the one who is freedom. Not a principle, but a person. And the blood that he shed to wash away your sins. 
the life that he offers and the name that will forever be proclaimed for all eternity, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I want to pray for each one of us here. Let's pray even now your Holy Spirit would settle upon us. I thank you that there is freedom in your name. I thank you that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And we want to stand firm in our freedom. Not only do we want to stand firm in it, Lord, we want our lives to be a proclamation of the truth of your gospel. There's no one else. There's no other way. You're the way, the truth, and the life. And would our lives bear witness to the glory of your name. Just thank you, Lord, even right now, in this moment, for the things that you're doing in the hearts and lives of your people.